Hello and welcome. This is The Ruck and there are now 11 days to go until the Premiership restarts. That's probably 11 more days of political fighting amongst the game's administrative class. And before then, there are only five days remaining to see if that infamous dud, Warren Gatland, is going to get a clean sweep of defeats in Super Rugby Aotearoa. And maybe only milliseconds before the panel of this podcast are abusing me for my pronunciation of A or I'm not going to do it again now. I'm Owen Slot, and today we have on the panel Stuart Barnes, who in just two words has dismissed the Autumn International Series as a seven-week frippery. Barnesy, what was your name for the uh, Eight Nations Series? The Cosmetic Cup. It's not dismissed in the sense there could be some quite exciting rugby, but come on, let's not pretend with the Six Nations having just ended and the Six Nations 2021 just about to start that it really does mean anything. Okay, well, so Barnes is going to brighten up as this podcast goes along, and we'll return to that subject in a minute. We also have Big Chief Lawrence Delalio. If we'd ever called him Big Chief before, we certainly wouldn't be doing so anymore, would we, Lawrence? Well, no, that would have to now go to a vote, and I understand the uh, Exeter Chiefs are split down the middle. They're keeping their name, but uh, they've lost the Big Chief, which is uh, somewhat controversial amongst uh, local supporters down there. Yeah, well, maybe we'll crack onto that a bit later, but I just can't quite get upset about Exeter being called the Chiefs. But more importantly, far more importantly, we have to introduce Alex Lowe. And I've actually come to him last for a reason this week. And hopefully our producer can give this moment a bit of a drum roll. Because I'm proud and excited to be able to share with our listeners the news that in our fantasy football league, in the manager of the month category, Alex managed a brilliant second place. So well, well done, Alex. And well done you, Slotty, for pipping me to the post on the final day. I was gutted about that, to be honest. They rolled in three months of Manager of the Month into one. It was like a record total of about 650 points. I loaded my whole team up with players from the cup final and um, still got pipped to the post by you, Slotty. Yeah, no, How did you manage it? Absolutely right. Manager of the Month was uh, was uh, me, your, your presenter of the day, and... Um, I've been basking in it ever since and looking forward to this moment to share it with uh, the man in second place. But anyway, treasure the small victories in life and all that. And um, really, that's just a private joke that most people probably find incredibly dull. So um, <laughs> let's uh, let's uh, crack on to... This uh, podcast comes with breaking news today, doesn't it, Alex? Do you want to explain the, the news that uh, the Times are putting out at five o'clock today that uh, we can discuss on this podcast? Yeah, so just before we came on air, I was talking to Martin Ziegler, uh, our colleague at the Times chief news correspondent. He's got the details of the package that the RFU presented to the government for what rugby will look like when it returns at community level. And it won't look like anything like it used to. For now, there'll be no scrums. The plan is 10 aside, two-touch rugby, which is an extension of, of a training match that, that lots of players uh, and lots of teams w- would use. But they've obviously decided that the, f- the physical nature of rugby and the close contact means they won't get it through in its usual form. And so they've, they've proposed a, a radically amended version of rugby. The reason why community rugby will, will take so long in brief is they've got a plan and stage F is returning to normal rugby with full contact, full scrums. We're at stage B at the moment. So there are a lot of steps away from being able to, to get that far. Now, we haven't heard yet from the RFU as to why they proposed this radical new format but my suspicion is they'd rather have some kind of rugby than no rugby at all but we 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 wait and see but that that's the news that's that's breaking as of today monday afternoon 
And um, so no scrums. Do we know if there's going to be line outs or? I would imagine there there could be, but you won't have any you won't have any heavy lifters in there because why would you pick a prop forward? Why would you pick a front row or a or a, a lumbering second row? in a game of tennis-side, two-touch rugby. So let's just be clear. We're, we're not saying that in National 1 level or community games that... This sounds more like a, more like a way of allowing people to have a training game than um, proper matches. Uh, that's my suspicion. They have a framework for a return to play at community level, which in, involves there are three different start points over the next six months, depending on when they're permitted to play. And according to, to Martin, this is, the, this is the format that, that all rugby below elite level will have to will have to follow if they want to if they want to restart their season I don't see clubs buying into it there are lots of players who want to buy into it I don't know what what the others think Barnsley you you might have thrived in this kind of a game but but Lawrence you probably would um wouldn't be too keen on it yeah I mean I think I can understand why it's keen to try and some uh, form of rugby below uh, the, the professional level because obviously they don't they don't you know they want to give rugby players up and down the country something as you say to play for a training game albeit you know I, I actually played in the first tennis side national competition I think it was down in Gloucester many many years ago and actually really enjoyed it there were scrums there were line outs there was even the odd driving mall but it, it was actually a really decent game of rugby other than seven aside rugby and uh, the odd the, the odd introduction of things like rugby x the game hasn't really seen any 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 distinctive changes so look it's not ideal for the rest of the community game but i do understand the reasons why the rfu are uh, have been have been pushing this because they want to ensure that players up and down the country get the opportunity to play at least something whether it's not full contact with with full-on scrums i think it's good a good initiative well it's better than sitting on your bum and just watching uh professional rugby being played in new zealand or south africa it gets bombs off uh sofas it gets people to rugby club and maybe they can have a couple of pints outside. So it, it's not the best, maybe, but not the worst of the worst scenarios. Um, I, I personally, Owen, at the moment, even though we're only a couple of weeks away from premiership starting in this country, I can't get my head around the concept of going to a game in the premiership on a Saturday or a Sunday and seeing teams actively scrummaging. We're two weeks away finding that hard to sort of even visualise. So I can understand what they're doing. When you said earlier about Lawrence probably wouldn't like it and I would, I actually would be the other way around. You see, as a fly half, you want people like Lawrence to run hard, to draw lots of people in, create space for you. If it's just two touches, effectively, it's a sort of, it's rugby league without even enough opportunities to create continuity. But I honestly don't think it's worth getting into the minutiae of the tactics and shape of the game because I think, as you intimated, it is actually about getting people playing again and just getting a feel. It's not rugby union as we know it, but just getting a feel, getting the ball running around a bit and opening up clubs. Just to let you know, because Martin Ziegler is typing, so while we're while we're chatting, he's he's hopefully going to answer some of the questions that that we've been discussing. So if he comes back to me with anything, I'll jump in and let you know. It's too exciting for words, isn't it? This is, <laughs> we've never had a, a pod so live as this. <laughs> well, while we're waiting for, for, for Zig to, to type, I mean, to, can he touch type or is he two fingers? I mean, how well, good, he was good at typing? It's been saying typing for a long time, so I think it's just all thumbs. 
Okay, well, while we're waiting for that, should we just have a, have a little look at, at um, the Lions head coach who's taking the, the British and Irish Lions to South Africa in the summer? His team, the Chiefs, uh, in uh, Super Rugby, lost 19-32 to the Crusaders at the weekend, and that's their, their seventh defeat on the trot in the new competition. Some New Zealand observers would like to point out that this proves that it's it's easier up here than it is down there. Either that or... Gatlin rugby doesn't work on the sort of rapid super rugby playing fields. That's just a way of needling. But um, is there anything in that or has it just been on an unlucky run? Because all the games have been close. Let's make no bones about it. He's not a man who's used to losing. You can lose two or three games on the trot, but but seven would suggest that there's there's a bit more to it than meets the eye. They lost the first game because they couldn't retain their kickoff um, and they spilled the ball forward. And and Bryn Gatlin, Warren Sun, you know, kicked the winning drop goal. And I think once you lose that momentum, um, that was quite a crushing defeat. I've, I've watched all of their chief, all the Chiefs games, and they could have easily won four of those uh, of those seven. So uh, I don't think he'll be panicking. He certainly won't be uh, reacting to the journalists in New Zealand. I think the uh, the eight or nine weeks he had as the headlines coach in New Zealand toughened him up to the to a lot of the nonsense that they write anyway, quite frankly. So, uh, yeah, and, and I think he's got work to do at the Chiefs. I think that's what it shows. You know, they're, they're, they're not as strong as, uh, as, as some of the other um, outfits there. Um, there's been a, few, a bit of player movement around the regions and, you know, Bowden Barrett to the Blues, et cetera, et cetera. The Chiefs have picked up where they left off and he's got work to do, but I don't think he'd be panicking at this stage. Barnsley, you've written a fair bit about this. Do you think it's anything to do with rugby styles, North and, Hem- North and South Hemisphere? Or I felt Eddie Jones made a very valid point when he talked about Warren Gatland essentially has taken a Northern Hemisphere style back there. And he, I don't think for once Eddie was, was trying to have a real dig at, at a rival coach. Warren does like a, a drive-in, aggressive type. Warren Gatlin would not be a very good tennis side coach, Lawrence, I think it's fair to say, <laughs> because he, he likes taking that contact. And I've seen it with those Chiefs games. Lawrence is right. It's all very tight, but they don't find it easy to just drive ball. They always want to offload. It's a strength. But when Gatlin coaches, it's a bit of a weakness. They, they haven't been able to do that. And I think Warren wants them very much to get into the heart of them, get behind them. And I think I wrote it last week when they were twenty-four nil up. Um, what Brad Weber, third choice All Black scrum half at the World Cup, said was it was working our sort of pick and drive in our kicking game, but we got bored with it. So we thought let's run it around a bit. Now that would never happen with a, a Welsh international team. We're bored. We're twenty-four nil up against Scotland. Let's. Let's just chuck it around. That, that wouldn't happen. The New Zealand mindset tells them that it's not just about winning, it's about enjoying ourselves and, and to use that old vernacular of New Zealand, chuck it about a bit. Uh, and as you say, the Blues, the offload stick. Crusaders, I think they're structurally better team. With the Chiefs who aren't quite that good playing at that level, then there's only one thing going to happen. It's worth remembering they did win three of their four games in Super Rugby uh, against slightly weaker sides. And this tournament, Aotearoa... Very um, good. You you could argue it's the hardest tournament there's ever been outside of an international tournament. I don't think it's the end of the world for Gatland, as Lowell says, but I just think we're seeing difference. uh, And with the game being played quickly... The Northern Hemisphere style is finding it harder just to hang on to the slipstream of uh, 
what they're doing in New Zealand. It's not okay. Southern Hemisphere, actually. It's New Zealand. I, I, I would look at it. I would look at it a bit more positively and say that uh, as the uh, as the incumbent coach of the uh, of the next British and Irish Lions tour, he's learning an awful lot about the breakdown, the new interpretations. Yeah. Uh, what's working, what's not working. No disrespect, but I couldn't give two hoots about what happens to the Chiefs, quite frankly. I'm more interested in what happens to the British and Irish Lions in South Africa. And, uh, and for Gatland, I think he's learning an enormous amount about how to uh, fundamentally put a game together that's going to defeat set the world champions in, in their own backyard. And, and if he can do that off the back of learning in New Zealand, because he's done all his other learning in the Northern Hemisphere, it would be fantastic. Mm. Can I jump in with a, an update from Zeke's? Oh, exciting moments. <laughs> Drum roll, um, please. So to answer a couple of our questions, he says official leagues won't be decided on this format of the game. It'll initially be played inside clubs and then between clubs with the hope that the government will then allow phased reintroduction of more contact, which, as I explained, it will be up to stage F of their return to play plan. Um, you're not going to have leagues decided on this. It's more to try to keep players involved for people to start using the clubhouses again and it's good for junior rugby so I've got a 17 year old who's wondering if he's going to get to play any rugby in the coming season and so so that's probably what he'll be doing I guess sounds like it yeah stage F you can sit at the bar and have at least two pints <laughs> I love the sound of stage F <laughs> 11 days to the premiership how do you three feel that, that it's shaping up I mean it, it's sort of looking interesting which teams do you feel are, are best placed for the next few weeks well, it's the great unknown, isn't it, really? Because it's been such a long period of time since any of these teams have, have played. There's been an enormous amount of, um, of change, physical change, and, and I would imagine mentally as well for, for, for everyone involved, including the fans. The movement of players has been significant, probably more movement of players than, than we've ever seen in, uh, in, in a rugby union season, let alone halfway through the season. Changes in coaches. I mean, you know, right across the Premiership, you look at the coaching setups now and uh, the likes of, say, a Gloucester. No one quite knows how it's all going to go. Thankfully, um, we haven't heard too much negative news around around the testing process. So it does look, for all intents and purposes, like we, we are on for the 14th of, uh, of August, Quinns against Sale. So how fit are the players? How body conditioned are they? Given that relegation's already resolved, are they just going to really have a crack and, and just go at it from the first whistle like we saw with you know, the New Zealand rugby when it first kicked off. There, there's so many things that we're that I'm excited about looking forward to. And that's before you even discuss some of the individual players. You know, what would it look like when, you, when we see Manu Tulangi in a sale shirt? You know, what, what Semi Rajajo in a Bristol shirt? You know, the, the, these young lads in a Bristol shirt. There's so many things that, to get excited about. And, um, you know, that's why I'm looking forward to the next few weeks. It's interesting to me that they are predominantly the same team, but they could be essentially a completely different side because of those two big signings, Carl Sinclair and, as Lol says, Sammy Randrandra. Pat Lamb loves to play a game with width and pace and offloading. Sinclair, with the way he has that ability to take that first pass, drive and either give the soft-handed ball or carrier, he will be able to draw people tighter to the breakdown than Bristol have been able to do so far. And if he can do that, Randrandra is the sort of bloke who will be, he'll be the hardest man to stop in the Premiership if, if you get sucked in defensively, because his great ability is to come late on these lacerating lines of his 
and he's going to open up holes in the 20 metres from touch that will be very hard to plug. And with Charles Piatow and Luke Morahan outside him, you know, Bristol will be running in score. So if Sinclair works, he will be the man who changes the whole Bristol game. And I've watched Lamb's teams for so long. And I watched how Connor won Super 14 with a weakened team. Bristol suddenly could win this tournament because they'll have a very strong team where it matters. Although still, you have to say, Exeter and are the team to beat. Bristol, obviously, one of the teams to, to really get excited about, as both as both of you have said. The race for the playoff places is, is interesting to me as well. As we heard from Jacob Umango last week, you know, Wasps were flying going into the breakdown. Although he senses a same, the same momentum in training, their challenge is to, is to pick up where they left off. And you just don't know whether that will click in the same way. Harlequins have rebuilt their bat line during lockdown. They've got you know, Mike Brown is fit again. Andre Esterhazen has arrived. Joe Marchant is back. Chris Ashton will play. They've got a, a new look bat line now. I think Paul Gustard said 50% of the team could be different from how it was pre-lockdown they're seven points off I think you know so I, you know and Northampton have, have bolstered their their squad with, with a couple of players including Nick Kiziekwi so while I don't think they'll challenge for the title there's kind of the drama will, will be more than just who's going to make the final this year I think the sprint we've got through to the end of the regular season will be interesting as those as those teams either look to hit the ground running and, and carry on the momentum from four months ago which is incredibly hard or start again with a new bat line and really press the case and could look very different. Um, so I think there are there are lots of plots um, all over the league, really. Oh, the other quite interesting dynamic. I mean, when it, I don't know how everyone, everyone here felt, but when sport first returned to our TV screens with this kind of in-stadium noise, no fans, you know, it was a bit of a tepid response, but all of a sudden everyone kind of has got used to it. And actually the way the end of the football season played out, it wasn't ideal, but it was good viewing. Same can be said for the West Indies with the cricket, yeah, empty stadium, but I thought they served up pretty competitive series, which England ended up winning. The fascinating thing about rugby is the game is, to a large extent, driven by emotion. And the, the interaction between the stadium, uh, a bit like football, and, and its fans and the team is really quite important in terms of getting players to the right emotional levels to be able to perform. And what I'm sort of slightly fascinated by is when you're walking into a sterile environment like a rugby stadium that's usually packed full of rugby fans, the challenge the players have got is, is getting themselves to that emotional level. Because it is, a, you know, it's, it is about going to war. It is very tribal. And uh, you know, the players have got to rely on doing that on their own. And uh, the ones that can reach those levels uh, straight away will be the ones that I think will, uh, will, will, will probably hit the ground running and play well. Because it's not easy to play rugby in front of no one. Paul Gustav was saying that he has contacted Frank Lampard to talk about exactly that subject for Harlequins. That I think Lampard and Michael Carrick came into Quinns last year as part of their uh, UEFA coaching badges and they've kept up a, a relationship and Gustav phoned Lampard to just to just understand exactly that dynamic and, and how do you manufacture the intensity required when sometimes you know you, ha- you have a 50,000 stadium that's roaring you on and sometimes you've got to find that from within you and the message that Lampard gave to Paul Gustav was, "You're going to need your, you're going to need players like Rob Shaw and Brown, Mike Brown, those kind of players who have that natural competitive drive, whatever the situation, and and can generate it themselves, rather than having to feed off the emotion and and the, the cauldron of the of the environment." Um, so he's he's aware of that already, and I, I'm sure he's not alone. You know, I'm sure other other directors of rugby have have been looking out. 
and, and looking elsewhere for, for exactly that kind of insight. Stuart, from watching Lawrence during his playing years, it's pretty obvious that he fed off the, the emotion of the, of, the, of the stadium around him, as he was saying himself. When you were playing, would it have made a lot of difference to you, do you think, if you took, suddenly took the, the crowd yeah. away? Huge, huge. You go back to Korea, think of club Korea, and playing teams like Gloucester, who had an absolute loathing of Bath away. Going to Welford Road, you fed off the roar. Lawrence will know exactly what I'm talking about. And I, I was about to say, one of the other really interesting things will be this whole home advantage thing, because the crowd are an intrinsic part of it. And without that crowd there to feed off, to get your team together and say, right, we're going to shut this slot up, up, rugby becomes slightly different. And, and, and as has football as well. And, and I've been fascinated watching it. Is home advantage just a matter of familiarity with your environment? It's not. It's about that sort of 16th man, or in football, the 12th man, roaring on and on and on. And I think it's absolutely fascinating because it demands there's more intellect required to see their way, to think their way through the game and to bring the passion. Because, you know, as, as writers, we all use that word, don't we? The passion of the game. And we know it's really quite hard to say what exactly it is. And a lot of that has, has gone now. We're into a world where it, it's about thinking your way through all the intricacies, which makes rugby union such a great game. And, and I'd like to thank uh, Alex for mentioning Frank Lampard. So I'd like to say to Lawrence, 2-1. Two, one. Two, one. <laughs> <laughs> you, you kept that back in your, in your pocket for a long time, Barnsley. <laughs> Oh, I, did wonder, I did wonder. I did wonder why Barnsley was wearing the blue of Chelsea today. It's very sweet of him to uh, to do that on the podcast. In my in my honour, thank you. It's been a long time coming, but you know the the, the ebb and flow of a game. You know, often the crowd have a big influence as a captain of a team. You know, you you get this sense of when is the right time to make a certain decision to go for the corner, to kick for a line out, to go for the post. You know, you take that away from a game of rugby because you haven't got that noise and that momentum and that pressure building on the op- on the opponent, on the referee. It makes the decisions, uh, quite different decisions to make, I think. And, and that's what I'm fascinated by. You've got to, mm-hmm. you've got to think your way through a game, but it's a, it's a very different game when you take fans away, particularly rugby. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Can we have a chat about Barnes's cosmetic cup? As, as discussed br- very briefly at the beginning so it's, it's, um, it's now confirmed um, England or the international window will be seven weeks or uh, six games for England five internationals that's going to start at the, at the end of October that they'll finish off the Six Nations and then we've got this hybrid sort of uh, born out of out of the crisis competition uh, which we're terming the Eight Nations Cup I'm sure they'll come up with a um, clever name for it so that, that's the Six Nations plus Fiji and Japan in two groups uh, and a final at the end. It's been put together because there's no other autumn internationals because the other Southern Hemisphere nations won't won't travel, um, which we understand why. People need to make money. People want to see international rugby. It's good for the game. And it's kind of a weird thing in the middle of nowhere. As Barnsley said, it's the cosmetic cup, but it could, for that reason, as Barnsley also said, be potentially brilliant. Six nations, we care about the result. Because Wales and England, uh, Ireland and Wales, Scotland and Ireland, France, England, these are fixtures that have history and heft that goes beyond rugby union. And fans, they don't care. At the end of the game, you go into a changing room, and Lawrence will know as a player, there are games when you think, God, we played badly, but you don't care because you've got the win. And the fans, essentially, in the Six Nations, never care if they get the wins. This is an opportunity for teams to say, right, let's address how we play. And, and you know, I, I think having been so little rugby for so long, I, I heard Astley Giles talking about England losing the first test to the Windies. And it might have been a bit of a, an excuse, I, I grant you. But he said, having been so no cricket for so long, it was important, the game itself, and not just the result. You might say you would say that. But I think there's something in that. We can't come back and have a, an international tournament. And bear in mind, you know, whatever the clubs think, the club game gets so little in terms of viewing numbers compared to the international game. That's the big act in town. And international rugby needs to come back and it needs to say to its older members, we're still here, how good it can be. And other people who have had their sports viewing disrupted, they could tune into rugby and go, wow, even if, you know, it really, in the end, England losing to Ireland doesn't leave Eddie Jones in despair. It could be a tournament that actually not transforms the way we think about the game, because I'm sure when we get back to the Six Nations, you'll be looking to the win. But it'll be a game that makes you think, hey, we can play at pace. We can always play El Toroa rugby and still win games. I think it's fascinating. There's a great opportunity, but we mustn't dwell too much on who's won and who's lost. I think this is a loophole, if ever there was one, the likes of Farrell and Jones and, and, and every other coach. It's interesting, isn't it? Everyone talks about the Southern Hemisphere not being able to travel or not wanting to travel. I mean, I think it's definitely the latter. They don't want to travel because the West Indies have shown very clearly that uh, you can come over to this country, you can self-isolate, you can put yourself in a bubble and you can play a test match series and then you can self-isolate again before you travel home. So clearly, New Zealand, South Africa and Australia don't want to come here. 
Uh, and I think that's, um, that, that's been made very, very clear. I mean, I've not been party to the conversations, but there's no reason why the All Blacks couldn't come here, stay in the Lensbury Hotel, self-isolate, play five, six test matches across the autumn. But clearly they feel that, you know, and, and understandably so, there's a little bit of self-interest going on at the moment. You know, New Zealand are protecting what they have and, and looking at their, um, at their recent matches, you can understand why. Australian rugby are just trying to get themselves sorted out in every single way. Financially, they need a new chief exec. There's lots going on there. And the other question I'd ask is everyone, including members of this panel uh, and around the world, have been screaming from the rooftops to have Japan and the likes of Fiji included, not just in a, in a one-off test match uh, against England or against uh, Wales or Ireland, but actually in a meaningful competition. And uh, the first opportunity this pandemic has allowed us to look at the likes of Japan, who had the most incredible World Cup, to look at the likes of Fiji and whether, listen, because of who the, who's still in charge of Fiji and rugby, they should even be allowed to play in this tournament is another matter entirely. But I think that we should be applauded for trying to integrate at the earliest opportunity the likes of Fiji and Japan into uh, a round-robin tournament. And I'm really looking forward to it, um, I have to say. Would I prefer, as a player, to be playing New Zealand, South Africa, Australia? The answer is yes, of course I would, because that's the... You know, certainly New Zealand and South Africa as world champions are the, are the benchmark and the litmus test for any rugby player in the Northern Hemisphere. But if I can't play them, you know, a meaningful tournament with the likes of Fiji and Japan, I think is a, is a wonderful alternative. I don't think it's necessarily something that's going to catch on forever, but, it, you know, it's certainly the, the, the right alternative for now. And it's probably just been made that a little bit more complicated by the fact that we've got one round of Six Nations games to conclude. For England, it's obviously Italy, but Ireland have got a couple more to play. So uh, that's probably what makes it look a little bit more congested than it should be. Alex, do you, do you agree with Barnsley that the that the, the Eight Nations tournament could be a, a, um, a platform for experimentation and, and something different? Or, or are, are coaches in the international game just in it to win it? I do agree with Barnsley. I mean, I think you and I had a kind of a, a, we, we, a printed conversation in the in the paper last week about how do they approach this. And the priority will be, for England, will be winning the Italy game well and putting themselves in, in pole position to, to win the Six Nations. For, for, the, for the matches that follow, there's a chance for Eddie Jones to, to try things. There's a chance for him to look at players who he might have looked at on the, the Japan tour that was cancelled. And I think we this autumn series is a collection of one-off test matches that they are trying to create a narrative around. And whatever the clubs say, it feels to me like this is a stepping stone towards towards the future. You know, we, England have replaced four home test matches with four test matches that will form part of a you know loose eight nations narrative. Going forward, the World Rugby want to... Well, the Six Nations and Sanzar want the Southern Hemisphere nations to be part of it too and, and to create a narrative out of an, out of an autumn window. I think... Just on, on Lawrence's point about the All Blacks, could they have come? Yes, they could have come. It would have been expensive to have done it. But they've also got the Rugby Championship to play because they need you know, they need to fulfil that that contract. So for this year, what, all, all that's happened in the North is they've replaced one series of one-off games with another series of one-off games in which they've tried to create a, a narrative. You know, and and that's the way that that's the way that the international game sees the future. They want an extended two-month autumn competition every year with two broadcasters on this podcast do we, do we have a clue who's going to be televising the um the eight nations tournament no yeah it's the tv rights going to be sold centrally by the six nations so we, with no insight into any conversations bt have the premiership running halfway through that autumn series so i would have thought that would be their priority 
does Sky want to take on a, a competition which would need them to, to broadcast matches from all home home nations? I, I'm not well, sure they would. Uh, listen, first of all, I'm an ex-broadcaster for a while now, slot yep. gave that up. But to answer Alex's question, would Sky want to take those games on? God, they'd love to. The big, the only act in town is getting your hands on the internationals. BT do a fantastic job of club rugby, but they, like my former employers, Sky, like the Beeb, everyone wants the jewels of the test match rugby. You know, everyone wants six nations, but they'd love to get their hands on this tournament. That's why it, it works. And that's why it is such a battle over player welfare, because these international games, world rugby wants the best players playing. I, I still don't know. Let's say England win their pool and Scotland win theirs. Henry Slade could end up against Stuart Hogg in the final, two Exeter players. And a week later, Exeter could be playing some big gun away in France in the first round of the European Cup. Who is going to say you've got to take a rest to Hogg? Well, I mean, it, well, listen, these, are, these, are, these, these, are, these are problems that all of us experienced for many, many years, playing back-to-back seasons, you know, Cup finals, European Cup finals, next day on a Southern Hemisphere tour, come back two weeks rest and then you're straight into another season. But at the end of the day, common sense will prevail. I've no doubt that if you're, if you're Eddie Jones or, or any international coach, you know, if, if there's five or six autumn internationals, you're not going to play in every single one of them, are you? You've got to build rest in. You might say that the coach, uh, uh, you know, uh, extra chiefs might say, listen, I need you to play next week. I know you've had a big international last week, but I'll build some rest into... Uh, into your campaign over over the Christmas period. So I think, you know, it's common sense all round. I think the big question, Slotty, for me, is not who's going to broadcast these games, but are we going to have fans in the stadium? And if so, how many thousand fans do we think might end up being able to come into the stadium? Because, you know, it's pretty clear that these games need to be played but because they need to generate some income. But the only way they're going to really generate income is if uh, we can get some uh, supporters in there. And I was slightly alarmed, as I'm sure you all were, by the, uh, you know, the, the reintroduction of, uh, of lockdown in terms of uh, blocking some of these pilot spectator fan experiences at cricket. And I'm sure the RFU, WRU, etc. are lobbying very, very hard to ensure that we get at least some fans into these stadiums. TV rights is, is going to be critical, Slotty, because as Lawrence says, we're not, you know, I think the RFU wanted, they were hopeful of 40,000 into Twickenham. The latest guidance is that they're, they're likely to get no more than 20, 25. Uh, and if the games are played behind closed doors because of, you know, because of a, of a second wave, because of, of lockdown, then the RFU, and, and the same would apply across across the competition, but the RFU have already said that if the games are played behind closed doors, it's the same financially as if they're not played at all. So therefore, the, the onus, the focus goes firmly on the Six Nations striking um, as good a television deal as they can. And you talk about the the name of the you know, they come up with a fancy name of the competition. You know, the commercial teams at Six Nations should be contacting sponsors immediately to, to try and get any kind of sponsorship deal for the competition because the drop in in, in income for for any nation that ha- you know for, from a half full stadium to to a third full stadium is is significant. And, and so therefore the onus will, will come on on other revenue streams and that has to be television and title sponsorship. Maybe one of the players could step in, a bit like Harry Kane and Leighton Orient. You know, one of the players could step in and sponsor the uh, the tournament itself. Do you think? The Maro Itoji Eight Nations Championship. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Very good. That sort of gives us a chance to talk about the big chief, doesn't it? I kind of think that's our sign-off sort of subject. Yeah, we, as discussed briefly at the beginning, Extra have had this debate about whether they can still be chiefs, and they still are chiefs, but they don't have a big chief as their big branding element. Do, do you boys feel strongly about this, or, or, or is it just noise in the modern world? obviously a very serious subject that goes back a long long way i'm one of those people and i don't i mean i might i might, I might get criticized for this i mean i can understand the sensitivity around a name like the washington redskins i don't feel the same personally i don't feel the same around the extra chiefs i think you know to be a chief is, is uh you know means something very different to being a, a red the connotations around the word redskin so you know, I, I can understand why they've arrived at that decision. Um, I really can. I certainly don't feel offended by that. But then again, I'm not, I'm not understand the history necessarily to the to the level that I should. So, uh, you know, it's clearly something that they've looked at very, very seriously. They've discussed it. It's kind of divided supporters, I understand. But uh, they've made a pretty firm decision on it. And good luck to them. Times have changed. And Exeter, until 1999, were Exeter Rugby Club. Exeter Chiefs have a junior team called the Braves. Clearly, there is a Native American slant to it, especially when you've got this great big hunk of a chief himself, which actually is the most amateur thing about Exeter, is this eight-foot chief that wanders around uh, like a full sort of Michelin man. They've got the tomahawk chop. They've got a war cry that goes around. Whether it's deliberate or not, I'm not aware. It's clearly not. And it's unthought because it comes from 20 years ago and it just seemed like a good gimmick. But the world, whatever you think about it, for better or worse, has changed. It's not hard for Exeter to say, hey, we have to give our chief the chop and we have to give this marketing the chop. And, and I just think there are some arguments that are worth fighting. There are some where you just think that the tide of history has just turned so fast, rolled in so fast, Exeter just say, what the hell, get rid of the chief, get rid of the, all the marketing in terms of tomahawk chops and that, whoa, and carry on being a very good rugby club. It is the worst chant of all time. I mean, let's just, we, can, we can all agree on that quite easily, can't we? Yeah. <laughs> I, th- I think um, we, we should be clear that they weren't, there was no campaign for them to change their name. The campaign was the branding. And, and there was an argument stronger put forward by the by those who were calling for change that that, that they could retain the name chiefs, but but have it related to, to to the Celtic chiefs from you know from back in the medieval times or whenever <laughs> medieval times probably wrong anyway olden days in court in, in you know around Exeter area. Alex tips having around the uh, the language of history there. Very well, actually, nice only because I'm not uh, yeah. I'm not Alex, that. that's just that's just that's just making it up. They were called the Exeter Chiefs. Because of Native Americans. No, yes, I know they were. They got a, they got a big chief. That big chief. Yeah, a completely. It's not a Welshman or an Irishman. No, co- completely. Traded in Exeter. The, the point I'm trying to make was that in their board meeting, they didn't. The, there wasn't a discussion around changing the name. The argument from the campaigners was that they could rebrand the name chief, and and it means something more local to where Exeter are from. The Kansas City Chiefs in America are still called the Kansas City Chiefs. They still have the Tomahawk Chop chant that echoes around their stadium that's called Arrowhead Stadium. But they, years ago, abandoned their, a logo that had a, a Native American holding a, an American football. Yeah, there's no, there was no evidence that, that, the, that the Exeter had yeah. spoken to them, for example, about, about the work that they do in trying to make sure that the balance is right. I think the, the, the cartoonish 
Native American mascot was yeah that was the first, I was absolutely right that they got rid of that. It feels to me that the logo will will go, and they haven't kind of read the mood music. They haven't. You know, they, I, I can understand why people who campaign for change feel feel it's, feel that the logo is disrespectful. I just don't think it's a conversation that's going to go away. That's precedent, isn't it? The, the Crusaders. Yep. They had their Christian Crusaders, and they actually were on horseback. They came out of castles. We had all the fire and fury of a potential war. They are still the Crusaders, uh, but after the tragic events in Christchurch, then the whole image and branding has gone. I think they'll bring it to a close there now. That was another outstanding edition of The Ruck, and thank you very much to... Um, to Stuart Barnes, Lawrence Dallo and Alex Lowe. We'll have a new big chief next week, having um, <laughs> having brought him down this week. So uh, thanks, gents. Thank you, everyone, for listening. 11 days to go, new rules in the community game, and, uh, and much more. See you next week. Hold up. 